The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How do you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. With working from home and trying to stay in touch with friends and family, a million pressing social issues, and an expectation to always be on 24-7. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit reset. That's when you reach for Coors Light. It's made to chill. My moment to chill is watching baseball, especially when the White Sox are on. I like to have a Coors Light beside me. It's a great beer to have watching the games as it's cool and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. And even the mountains on my cans turn blue telling me that it's time to hit reset. Sit back, relax, and hunker down for an evening of White Sox baseball. So when it's time for you to unwind, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light and the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Must be 21 years or older to enjoy. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And as always, celebrate responsibly. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's Monday night, April 19th, as we record this new episode after the Boston Red Sox series. I know it's out of the norm. Typically, Monday morning, you guys get a brand spanking new Sox Machine Podcast where we answer your questions in P.O. Sox and spend at least 60 minutes talking about the White Sox. We threw you off because the White Sox participated in playing on Patriots Day, the first time since 1994. And it was a very early morning with the first pitch at 10 in the morning central time. Maybe a bit early for Lucas Giolito. We'll discuss his one bad inning and the White Sox splitting the four-game series with the Boston Red Sox. Also look ahead to this upcoming two-game series in Cleveland that will feature another Carlos Rodon versus Zach Plesek matchup that really went the White Sox way last week. At the end of this podcast, we'll answer your questions in P.O. Sox. 
Joining me is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com and the co-host of the podcast, it's Jim Margulis. And hello, Jim. I hope your Patriots Day went a lot better than Lucas Giolito's. I wasn't encouraged to uh, celebrate it. <laughs> to follow up on our discussion from uh, Sox Machine Live, yes, uh, Tennessee does not really pay attention to Patriots Day one way or another, so I did not know what to do, and neither did Lucas Giolito. No, and... For Lucas Giolito, that's where we're going to start this week's uh, episode, or this episode at least, his bad day. So I went and got my second vaccine shot, and I did this at the United Center, and it's a whole process because FEMA and the National Guard, they are running that. And as I was going through the lines, Jim, going station to station uh, to finally get Like the Red Sox. (laughs) Like the Red Sox. When I finally took my seat after getting the shot, I look at my phone and it's six to one Boston. And I'm thinking, what the hell is going on? So it just appears that based on Giolito's final line of one inning pitched, eight hits allowed, eight runs allowed, seven of them earned, walking two and striking out none, that Boston was just not fooled whatsoever by Giolito's fastball and changeup combo. Yeah, that's how it looked. And, you know, with Alex Cora uh, managing the Red Sox and given that he was suspended for being involved and perhaps, you know, depending on who you believe, uh, being perhaps the engineer or architect of the Astros' uh, sign-stealing or sign-relaying system, you know, it's it's in his past, so you can bring it up and say, uh, you know, maybe that had something to do with it. But really, you know, when, when watching Giolito in a normal start where he's dominating or looking like his normal self, you know, he throws the high fastball, high changeup combination, or I should say changeup combination just because his changeups can go wherever. If it's low, it's great. If it's high, it's also usually pretty good. So, uh, you know, when he when he's, has a start like that, you're looking at it and saying, like, how can, you know, how can these hitters not expect this? How can they not hit it when it's at their eyes? Like, how are they not doing it? And then... You see a start like this, and it's and, and it's something that I think inspires a little bit of fear going forward. And I think it'll only take like a another start or two to to put it behind him. But it's just a kind of start that I think uh, is a manifestation of my fears when Giolito is going well, and you're seeing those changeups float around bats as they're swinging, and you think you know it, it reminds me of the uh, Simpsons episode where Krusty the Clown bets on the Washington Generals, thinking they're due, and he's just <laughs> like they're just spinning the ball on their finger. Take it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the same thing with like, you know, Giolito's like, he's throwing high changeups, just hit it. And today they're basically doing that, sitting changeup, just poking them into the outfield. Only one was hit like particularly hard. The others were, you know, firmly hit, you know, good line drives, but not like smoked. It was just keeping hands back, poking them in the outfield, keeping hands back, poking them in the outfield. So, uh, you know, after six of those in a row, that's basically spelled doom. And the high fastballs can get by it. The, they, uh, I think they went to the slider a little bit late if that was even going to do anything. So yeah, it was a disaster all around. Yeah. And is there anything in this uh, very short appearance by Lucas Giolito that gives you concern moving forward? Uh, you know, not really in, in terms, of, I, I think it's going to, you know, based on uh, that he's had burps before and that he's, uh, you know, occasionally been smoked like this. You, you can only, uh, you know, draw so many conclusions, but the changeup, it, it didn't seem like it had, the dive on it or the run on it, you know, the, the, the kind of screwball movement that he sometimes has, especially early in starts and the fastball didn't have that pop either. So it seemed like the fastball wasn't inspiring fear. 
So that just, you know, let the Red Sox feel comfortable sitting back on the changeup, which was ordinary. And I think, you know, perhaps next time out, if he has his fastball, like a, a good riding fastball at the top of the zone that hitters have to pay attention to, that, that he establishes to the point where, um, you know, the changeup can't be the only pitch sat on, then I think he's more or less fine. I, I think just the combination of not having good fastball life and not having good, you know, real good changeup action, I think, uh, spelled his doom uh, today. Maybe he shouldn't start games before 12 o'clock central time. Yeah. No, that could very, I mean, you know, it's an excuse or it feels like a cop out, but uh, given that there's only one of these a year, usually it's like, uh, well, maybe it could be, uh, especially, you know, should he, you know, have, you know, rip off three or four great starts in a row. And, and that looks like the aberration, you know, that's, uh, you know, it might be an aberrant start and it was net at an aberrant uh, first pitch time. So who knows? Yeah, it's just it was mentioned during spring training and he's talked a little bit about it on his podcast with Chris Rose uh, that he has every couple of weeks that he's mm-hmm. not a morning person. <laughs> I think this, this so says it, yeah. To come out, and, yeah, to have this type of performance and 11 a.m. Eastern time, that was the local time for Giolito. Yeah, I could say, yes, Lucas, you are not a morning person and hopefully he can put this start behind him. He sounded a bit remorseful in his press conference after the game in the sense that he felt sorry uh, to his fellow teammates that he pretty much cost them the game after the first inning. Uh, and, th- you know, that is true because uh, he did have an early lead uh, thanks to Tim Anderson getting a, a single and then stealing. And then Luis Robert with an RBI double looked like the White Sox were in business early. And then the complete collapse of Lucas Giolito and the White Sox are back below 500 at eight and nine. And uh, Mark Hope had a good question regarding as far as Lucas Giolito. And he's asking Jim, how did today's performance against Boston affect Giolito's Cy Young chances? I don't think it affected him much. I mean, it digs him a bit of a hole, but remember last year opening day was a disaster for him. Uh, Gave up seven runs over three and two thirds innings against the twins and had an ERA of 17, 18 uh, after the first start. And then he only had a, um, you know, 11 starts after that. And he ended up lowering it to uh, 3.48 in the season. It was down as low as uh, uh, 309 after the no hitter. And so he just had more or less a string of ordinary starts, uh, you know, quality starts, but, you know, ordinary ones going to the end of the season. So, uh, you know, if you were able to, and plus, you know, we're also talking about a 12-game sample. Uh, That could have been just like an ordinary five starts in the middle of a 30-start season, and you would have never really paid attention to it. So, you know, he he certainly dug himself a hole, but, you know, he had a chance to put a dent in Cy Young voting last year, even if maybe Shane Bieber was a a bit too much to uh, overcome. Uh, But, He's going to have to uh, make up for it the next few starts. And he needs Shane Bieber to have a bad start. Yes. A clunker like he did. Because uh, Bieber's still pitching very well. If if he, if he the White Sox were in the National League, if he had to compete against a Jacob deGrom or Marcus Stroman, I would say this start really hurts his chances because the pitching in the National League for the Cy Young contenders is out of this world. Uh, to start the season. And it's a pretty big hole that Lucas Giolito would be in if he was in the National League. Right now in the American League, I'd say, I agree with you, Jim. I don't think it impacts it too much, but 
Giolito needs to not have another clunker like this, and he needs Shane Bieber to have a, a bad couple of weeks so th- their final numbers could be similar. So that's that's one bad. So we're going to go from bad to good, bad to good in this opening segment for the White Sox. So let's uh, let's talk about something good to rinse the palate after Lucas Giolito's start, and it's the return of Tim Anderson. We were hoping that Tim Anderson could create a spark gym coming off the injured list and being back in the lineup, a lineup that really needed his bat. And in his last four games, Tim Anderson is nine for 18 with a double home run and three stolen bases. I'd say that Anderson is definitely providing that spark gym. Uh, Anderson is yet to walk, but again, that's not really part of his game. And the idea, this is an idea that we saw on Monday with the lineup having Tim Anderson, Adam Eaton, and Luis Robert as the one, two, three in the top of the lineup. And Jim, I like that mm-hmm. because these three guys are actually hitting right now. I don't know if it's a good solution long term, but at least in the short term, I like the idea for Tony La Russa to even try this again in the upcoming games in Cleveland to pair these three. Yeah, especially if, you know, Jose Abreu doesn't get a day off after he looks like he really needs a day off. I, I suppose we'll get to him, but uh, to, to focus on the good right now, yeah, Robert looks really uh, disciplined, um, especially by his standards. Uh, I think even by other players' standards, he, he looks relatively in control and hitting the ball hard to uh, you know, uh, right field and left field. So, that, you know, that, that looks great. But yeah, to talk about Anderson... Um, you know, we, we had mentioned him the last time when, when, when talking about how he is coming back and how he's somebody who can be a little bit underappreciated because of his flaws. Um, you know, he doesn't walk. He um, you know, can commit the occasional error in the field or doesn't make the sensational play in the field. Uh, occasionally can contribute to the White Sox discipline and strikeout issues against right-handed pitching. But when he's back and feeling it and, and having fun and, and, and barreling up the ball, whether it turns into uh, singles or homers, um, it's, it's a different offensive feel and the innings that he's in have a lot more life in them. I think we saw that, especially in the leadoff spot with him. Uh, and then Nick Magical took over, did a nice job too, but getting those first inning runs was really refreshing. And sometimes he did it himself and sometimes he had the help of guys behind him. But, uh, the three stolen bases I think are huge just because, you know, coming back from a, a leg injury, you think that he might be easing his way back and, or, or might be a little ginger or hesitant, but he went for it. And, uh, uh, was uh, running with a lot of uh, life, getting a lot of distance on his slides, celebrating after his slides. He he looked like he was fully comfortable, and that's a good thing for the White Sox because yeah, uh, when he's back, then I think that really makes it very simple in terms of uh, positions that uh, Tony La Russa has to address, and that's mainly left field. And left field's still a mess, but at least you're not like trying to divide the same player pool between shortstop and left field and have twice the problems. Luis Robert already has seven doubles, Jim. Yeah. He's got one home run. He's got a triple. But he is piling up on the extra base hits. Is He's got seven doubles. That's why I like the idea of continuing to pair these three in the top of the lineup. Because Adam Eaton is having a good start to this season. And we know that he could put the ball in play. I just feel like this is your best combination of contact, speed, and power. That can get you a quick run. Uh, to start off the game, and I think that Larusa should try this again in the upcoming games. And again, I we're, that it's going to be the next thing we're going to talk about is Jose Abreu. But 
as long as you know so the key hitters in this lineup are struggling, I say why not? Let's yeah. you know change it up here and have these three start off the game. Especially since it's right, left, right. It makes sense from a strategic standpoint, too. You're not just dumping your best hitters uh, without thought at the top of the order. It does keep managers honest as well. And, you know, Yohan Makata's had some better swings as of late. He had a couple big singles um, after uh, to get a runner from third home after Jose Abreu uh, faltered in front of him, not getting the run home uh, with two outs, delivering nice controlled swings for, for solid singles. And so I don't mind him batting like fourth. And then you get that, you know, still that lineup balanced in the top four spots with hitters who feel more like a threat than the other guys. All right. So let's talk about Jose Abreu because I feel like we're kind of beating around the bush when talking about the light White Sox lineup. And uh, Brendan has this question as Jose Abreu is currently hitting 188 with a 293 on base percentage, slugging 313. Nick Madrigal, by the way, is out slugging. Jose Abreu, and Yohan Makata to start this season. But Brendan is asking, last season starting in July, the narrative was that the Caribbean players should start strong because it's hot outside. Is there concrete evidence that Caribbean players start slow in April and early May? Steve Stone keeps saying Abreu will pick it up in May. Thoughts? I haven't seen, I did Google to see if there are any uh, studies of the way uh, Latin American players play in early season and cold weather. Couldn't find anything conclusive. I think there's a lot of anecdotal evidence uh, with that. And I think, you know, some players like I, I always think of Alexi Ramirez uh, wearing the balaclava on his head, and like basically like uh, boxing gloves for uh, <laughs> batting gloves in the dugout, just trying to stay warm. He always looked miserable in April. He hated like, or at least he, he was very miserable at Sox Fest, even <laughs> Uh, just like flying in, dropping to Chicago in January and had a lot of company there and, and, and guys who did not like seeing snow. So I think there are, you know, memorable players who struggle with it, look just uh, visibly uncomfortable slash miserable in the weather. And so I think it's you know natural to say like, well, if you're not used to the weather and that's also the human experience too, just if you're not used to cold weather and, you, and then you go to it and you're not prepared for it, like you see anytime there's like a snowstorm in the South and you see people you know, wearing their heaviest jackets that they have and they're basically windbreakers and, uh, and shivering and just that's, you know, that's human nature. And I think it's a, a way to empathize, but uh, you know, Abreu, when looking at his numbers, his, you know, his worst month is April and, and into May. Um, but you know, it's still pretty good. Like, you know, we're talking about like an 800 OPS still. It's not like somebody who, uh, routinely just doesn't show up until mid May or, or Memorial day or anything like that. So I'm inclined to think like, you know, stones Memorial day thing, or, you know, that the line he keeps dropping is, is a couple things. One, it could be just, you know, when weather warms up, he warms up. Um, it could be a case where just, He's inevitable, you know, just a way of saying that by Memorial Day, his numbers will be fine because sometimes he looks ugly or overmatched or, um, you know, looks like he's struggling with a way pitchers are routinely attacking him. Like I'm thinking a couple of years ago when he's just getting pummeled by inside pitches, it took him like a solid month, month and a half for him to figure out a way to counter that. And right now it just seems like low pitches over the plate, just beating him in the ground. And it, it might take him a bit to figure out how to resist that or, adjust the swing or move in the box or something to take away that pitch uh, and run, especially in like run scoring situations. Uh, so it could be that, you know, it could be just a, a faith in his ability to figure it out. It could be just too 
that, um, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about slow starters and, and Adam Eaton was somebody who said he had the reputation for being a slow starter. You know, not in Latin American players from Ohio, but, you know, he had the same thing when he struggled last year. Uh, even with the warm weather uh, with Washington, he just said that uh, I get off to a slow start and the start's all I had. And this year he is getting off to a great start, especially uh, given the expectations around him. So I think, you know, the slow starter thing, too, is just a way to under-promise and over-deliver. Like, if you have a, a great start, everybody's happy. If you have a slow start, you kind of have to mitigate the panic because eventually the sample size gets bigger, things normalize, and hitters more or less come back to their norms. It's a way to kind of alleviate fear. So I think all of those things kind of play into it. There probably is a little bit of discomfort, a little bit of a new uh, mode of attack that he needs to figure out, and then just a little bit of human nature too, trying to counter expectations and and try to keep people grounded. And eventually, I think uh, you know he will. I don't think he'll resemble his MVP form, but I think he'll resemble what he was before then. Um, but either way, he's just kind of inevitable in the lineup. He's not going to be benched or anything like that. So you just kind mm-hmm. of have to uh, more or less sit back and and hope that a very professional figure, uh, a very professional hitter, figures it out. I have a huge concern for Jose Abreu. I know it is a small sample size, but this is red alert type of numbers coming from his baseball savant page, Jim. In 2020, against the fastball, Jose Abreu hit 380 and slugged 686. You were crazy as a pitcher in 2020 to even throw a fastball to Jose Abreu, who only struck out 19 times in 133 plate appearances That ended with the fastball pitch that is a 14.2% strikeout rate and his whiff rate was 19.9%. In 2021, Jose Abreu is hitting 148 against fastballs, slugging 185 against fastballs, has already struck out 11 times on a fastball in 32 plate appearances, and his whiff rate is 44.1%. Jim, I am afraid. I'm afraid to dig any deeper into this data. Again, it's a small sample size of just 17 games in 2021, but I'm scared on what I will find because my hypothesis is velocity is giving Abreu trouble. And this is the same path that Edwin Encarnacion went down. And I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait until game 50 which is on track to be the Friday of Memorial Day weekend, so the end of May. But if Abreu's numbers against the fastball do not vastly improve, I don't share the same confidence as you do. He needs to be better against the fastball because right now that bat looks slow, his swing looks slow, and he is getting owned by the fastball. Yeah, I, I can see what you're saying, and um, you know that that is a way that hitters uh, age, and sometimes just hitters age a lot faster or a lot more suddenly uh, than you know other hitters do. I think with Encarnacion, the the thing with him was that it was a slow uh, decline, or at least the pop up rate in Clarice. He's basically selling out for homers, mm-hmm. and it just the, you could see diminishing returns in the approach, and the White Sox just there was nothing left basically in the tank by the time they got him. With Abreu, you look at the underlying you know, figures or, or peripherals and, and, and stats components in his hitting profile, nothing is quite there you know, year to year to year. Like the, the contact was there, the ground ball rate's been stable, the pop-up rate's been stable, the, the damage on uh, pitches has been stable. Um, so to, for all of it to show up in one year 
what struck me as sudden. Um, I can mm-hmm. see that, uh, you know, maybe when, even even when he does rebound, uh, those numbers could be scary and and points towards a really, you know, <laughs> you know maybe catastrophic is too uh, strong a word, but just a sharp decline in 2022. Like, it's something to pay attention to projecting him into the following year, even if he does recover, because that is one way hitters age. But for the time being, just, you know, it just seems like he's... I'm thinking of the time when he just got you know beat inside by fastballs. The bat looked slow then too, like he just could not get the barrel to pitches inside, and he figured it out. So that's why I'm. He's earned the benefit of the doubt in terms of just how he responds when he learns that pitchers are attacking him one way, one specific way, uh, to try to counter, I guess, changes made the year before, and he eventually overcame it and and staved off the decline with uh with with a fury, and uh, I think yeah. It is something to pay attention to. Like, I will be paying attention to that. Uh, I would just like to see, like, Tony LaRusso give him a day off. Like, you know, after he uh, grounded into, uh, almost grounded three double plays, I thought he'd, that'd be a natural case for a day off with a morning start the next day. But he's back in the lineup and he strikes out three times. Like, I'm not sure right. what that does for him. And I know he's very stubborn about playing and hates uh, being in the dugout. But, you know, I, I think should he be somebody who's declining, uh, the White Sox will have to manage that in a way that. Uh, doesn't just serve him. Yeah, again, it, when you're looking at the StatCast data, he's doing well against the slider. He's doing well against the changeup. But anything that holds velocity is scary stuff right now. And I don't know if we want to make a bigger deal about this, but it ended up being a pretty big deal when the White Sox tried to downplay Yohan Makata's COVID situation to start 2020. And then if you go back and listen to us, on what was talked about, Mankata's COVID being a mild case. And then in August and September, we're talking about, wow, this is really impacting Yoan Makata. Maybe mm-hmm. Abreu hasn't fully recovered from COVID. I don't know. I'm grasping at the wind because this is the first time I've ever seen Jose Abreu be terrible against the fastball. And these are absolutely terrible numbers, Jim, uh, numbers that you do not want to see your slugger be struggling with. And if he is going to recover and if Jose Abreu is going to bounce back, it's this pitch. It's this pitch that he suddenly gets on top of fastballs again. He starts barreling them up and then we're not freaking out anymore. And he's, as you mentioned, back to the Jose Abreu of old, but to come full circle to answer Brendan's question, I disagree with Steve Stone. This is not a weather-related thing. This is a fastball-related thing. And Jose Abreu is doing a terrible job right now handling that pitch. And pitchers right now are just dominating him with this type of velocity. And it's not a good sign. So we move from Jose Abreu. So hopefully we didn't scare you away. And you have stopped listening to this podcast and cry into your coffee. Uh, It's just 17 games into the season. So let's talk a little bit something good and something bad, but this something bad may open up another opportunity. And the something good is Michael Kopech's spot start in the second game of the doubleheader. He got into the fourth inning. Overall, he threw 41 pitches. He His final line was three innings pitched. He allowed one hit. That one hit ended up scoring, uh, and he allowed one walk, and he struck out four. I thought he looked really good, Jim. And the reason I'm mentioning this now mm-hmm. is that before Kopech start, Lance Lynn is going on the 10-day injured list, the muscle that connects your neck to your shoulder blade. 
uh, on the right side uh, is just nagging on him. So the White Sox are being cautious here and putting Lynn on the 10-day IL, and they look at it with it being retroactive to April 17th, that with a couple off days in between, then Lynn could possibly miss just one start. And you wrote about this as far as on SoxMachine.com. Focusing first on Lynn, I agree with you. This really needs to be a short stint on the IL for Lance Lynn because if this extends into May, Jim, then this is another concern the White Sox have to worry about. It reminds me of, you know, Elo Jimenez when we talked about him saying that, you know, the White Sox can theoretically absorb uh, Jimenez's injury in his absence, but they really can't absorb another, uh, you know, sizable blow like that to the top of their, you know, what I call their most essential player list. And Lynn is right up there because they have him for one year. They got him for 200 innings or, you know, the, the equivalent of 200 innings and whatever 2021 uh, presents for pitchers. So, you know, if he ends up throwing like 160, you know, if they're 160 good innings, you know, depending on the timing and uh, who else is contributing and, and, uh, what the twins and Indians look like, then, you know, maybe it's a case where they can still work with that. But, uh, you know, Lynn being the workhorse, that projection still didn't buy him being, that was one way for the White Sox to beat those projections by him just showing up a little bit more than his career averages say he should. And so if he falls in line with what he's offered through his, you know, kind of uneven career and is no longer like the Cy Young threats, but somebody who's just more or less like a decent number three, then yeah, as long as Dallas Keuchel is kind of like this five inning guy right now, it's they they kind of lose that advantage that Lynn was supposed to provide for this year. So you know they they have a reason to put him on the injured list now, like especially with a couple off days and with uh, the retroactive nature of his you know injured list placement. You know, and he didn't look that bad or like there's really nothing uh, affecting him pitching wise in his last start out. So there wasn't like there were any kind of warning signs that. Uh, they're trying to downplay with this, so at least that we could see from his performance. So I'm inclined to you know, ride with him here and just say that's just good timing, terrible weather. Who knows? Like some games might be rained out or snowed out. And, uh, you know, they, they really might not really miss a start altogether or they might not have to scramble to cover his day. It, it might be fine. So uh, this might be the best time to do it, you know, while the weather's bulky and while there's just nothing really... Um, there's no real harm in, in terms of the calendar, the threat that that provides. Well, Trooper Galactus had this question about Michael Kopech, and he wrote to us, the plan is obviously for Michael Kopech to get stretched out and eventually be a regular starter. Do you think it's a possibility that when Charlotte's season starts uh, their season, which is aiming to be May 4th, they option him to AAA to give him time to get into an every fifth day rhythm, or are they just going to employ him in the bullpen for longer and longer outings as they present themselves until they think he's built up enough stamina to go five plus innings each time out? Or alternatively, should we not expect him to get regular starts at all this year and only the occasional opener role like Sunday? Well, I think Tony LaRussa tried to uh, at least set the expectations immediately for Kopech and that he likened him to Adam Wainwright in 2006. And Wainwright in 2007 was a very successful starter, but the year before that, his first full year in the majors, he was a bullpen guy. And uh, yeah, first a multi-inning reliever and then eventually ascended into a greater role. But instead of going to the rotation, he ended up being LaRussa's closer 
and he ended up recording the final out of the World Series. So, uh, you know, that's uh, one way to do it. And I think just based on how the bullpen has looked so far and how shaky uh, some guys have been, that I think the bullpen need is going to be too great, I think, to take Kopech out of the equation, especially right now. Uh, I think, you know, when you have like a guy like Dylan Cease who's throwing shorter than average starts and uh, Dallas Keuchel is throwing, uh, or he's not working particularly deep into games right now, that there's going to be a need for somebody to cover two to three innings on a regular basis. And, uh, you know, should Lynn miss some time or should another starter miss some time? Um, you know, there could be uh, some spot starts to fill in too to where all of a sudden he's throwing two to three innings with regularity on something resembling a, a normal pitcher schedule. And that just might be enough to, you know, should there be a rotation vacancy uh, that that lasts weeks, then I think you could probably ease them into the rotation there. Like, you know, have them start a game uh, that's maybe three innings, and then next time out, see if you can go four. Kind of like spring training schedule, but in the middle of the season. And I think that's fine because with Kopech, uh, you know, missing all the last two seasons, um, he's going to need something like that anyway. So if you can provide major league innings while ramping up like that, uh, then they may as well take it. I'm starting to see this in the college ranks, Jim, especially for pitchers that have some helium to their name, like Sam Bachman of Miami, Ohio. He had some arm quote unquote soreness. Uh, he missed three weeks and then each weekend, Uh, he has gone two innings, then three innings, then four innings, then five innings. And his last appearance, he just pitched six innings. I could see that possibly with Michael Kopech at some point this season. Uh, I just feel like the way that he has been throwing, and again, small sample size, but his stuff is better than Dylan Cease. Dylan Cease at this moment has the stamina that I don't think Michael Kopech has. So that's why I'm not calling for Michael Kopech to replace Dylan Cease in the rotation in April. But things could change in August or even September. And if Dylan Cease doesn't end up being a guy that, you know, Tony La Russa can count on to throw more than 85 pitches or get through the fifth inning, then yeah, I could possibly see a switch in roles where Kopech is getting that start and Cease is the guy that's coming out of the bullpen to throw two to three innings, especially getting prepared for a possible postseason run. But I do want to ask this question because, again, the White Sox need to shuffle here, and they may need to cover for at least one start for Lance Lynn. And I'm looking at this Sunday, April 25th game against the Texas Rangers, Jim, and I'm wondering uh, if this is going to be Lance Lynn's spot, if Giolito really wants to get that bad taste out of his mouth and he makes the Saturday start against the Texas Rangers, uh, would you be in favor of Larusa having Kopech start that game again and see how far he gets on 50 pitches? Uh, I would not be opposed. I think it depends on how the games unfold in, in, in front of them, just because there could be winnable games where Kopech is needed, and I wouldn't want to like sacrifice a start later for uh, a win now, just based on the way they're playing, how uneven they've been, how many games the bullpen has botched already, uh, that they really can't... Uh, um, you know, they basically already used their yearly allotment of blown late leads like anything. So uh, at this point, I just wouldn't want to play it too casual and, and think that uh, uh, the White Sox can afford to uh, take a chance with a winnable game 
and then you know just have Kopech go three or four innings, which might not guarantee a winnable game the next day. So if they can somehow arrange it to where he starts and they don't need him for uh, multiple innings in a game like that, then yeah, great, you know, do it again. But uh, I think he's you know Larus is more or less taking it uh, day by day with the way his bullpen is uh, uh, absorbing a workload, and it's probably the way to the way to go with uh, with Kopech right now, just because. Uh, just everything feels a bit tenuous with the pitching staff and, and uh, Kopech's tenuous in a good way. <laughs> there mm-hmm. are ways he can go. But uh, the other ones are just you know, more or less like, we're not sure if this guy's going to give us uh, six innings or two and two thirds. <laughs> what do we do then? Well, we know what Cease is going to give. Four and two thirds innings, 85 pitches. Yeah, he's like the Chris Davis. <laughs> Poor guy. I just, I'm wondering if there's a trust issue but at the same time, Cease is not doing enough performance-wise to give Larusa the opportunity to trust him more to get through that fifth inning. It just seemed like Cease looked a bit dejected, Jim, coming off the mound, not able to get through the fifth inning again. And it's it is kind of odd for him, as you mentioned, Chris Davis of the uh, Oakland A's and the Texas Rangers, always batting two forty-seven. Hopefully, Cease finds a way to get through the fifth inning again. The 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 upcoming schedule for the White Sox lines up a little bit as Texas and Detroit are not playing good baseball at the moment. So fingers crossed that Cease is able to go deeper into that start. But again, if this continues, this trend, yeah, in August and September, I'm putting a pin in it, Jim. I think we're having this conversation of swapping Kopech into the rotation and having Dylan Cease be the swing man out of the bullpen, especially in preparation of a possible postseason run. But we'll see if we get there. And uh, before we preview the upcoming series in Cleveland, we did get this question from Mo Sox, one of our Patreon supporters. And uh, Mo Sox wrote to us, Jim, I am sure you will discuss this in the podcast, but with the exception of the doubleheader on Sunday, why do you think the White Sox seem so out of sync? It seems that most of Tony LaRusse's lineups don't click, Andrew Vaughn and Zach Collins look very much overwhelmed by first-rate Major League pitching, and Jose Abreu and Yohan Makata look awkward. This is hardly the imposing lineup we expected. Only Nick Madrigal seems the same steady find-a-way-to-get-on-base player that he's always been. Yerman is great, but he has not played consistently, and there is the fear that the league will figure him out. Is it the absence of Aloy? Is it the cold weather? Is it, is it the construction of the lineup? Is it all of the above? Your thoughts? Yeah, I think, you know, there are just a few factors kind of uh, coalescing into uh, the lineup. I think they still have some of the issues with right-handed pitching that they had last year. Um, that, you know, they were able to paper over with a really strong performance against lefties, like an unsustainably strong performance against lefties. But, you know, the right-handed issues, uh, just the right-handed nature of the lineup, uh you know, struggling with breaking balls. Now Abreu, as you mentioned, with fastballs out of the gate, not helping. And Abreu was a little bit, uh, you know, before his MVP season in 2019, he had a troubling performance against right-hand pitching. And if he picks up where he left off with that, um, that's a, a a big bat in the middle lineup who, uh, you know, as we saw, just could pound balls on the ground or strike out and uh, kind of kill some rallies. So that doesn't help. Um, you have the, the mess in left field and Larry Garcia, I think the way he started and how, uh, 
basically, I, you know, I'm, I want to look at his spray chart, but just basically it seems like the only hits he has are in the infield. Like just, you know, kind of legging out infield singles, balls deflecting off the pitcher, uh, bunts. He really doesn't feel comfortable putting full swings on the bat. It would really help if he could have stepped up uh, while there's this left field, um, you know, <laughs> a piss was happening, but he's not. He's contributing to it. Uh, Andrew Vaughn looking like a rookie, you know, not helping there. Um, and then the defense just, you know, that's, that doesn't, yeah, I think when you're looking at, uh, out of sync and, and if you really want to look at a team that's like struggling in all the facets, the Yankees are a fascinating case right now. Uh, they're, they're one team that, uh, brings some comfort to, to White Sox fans. I think if you pay attention to what they're doing, whether watching them or at least watching the highlights and low lights and reading the coverage is that they're basically the White Sox taken to a new extreme, uh, the way they failed with runners in scoring position, the way they've made some really inexplicable errors in the field. Um, fans were throwing, uh, you know, pelting uh, the field with baseballs yep. and bleachers and causing a, uh, causing a stoppage in play. So uh, they're not the only team struggling and looking like they're you know, having a hard time making the pieces fit together. But um, in this case, I think there are some weaknesses. There are some just weird, um, you know, slumps happening that at uh, one time that doesn't help. And then some, uh, some uncharacteristic errors that I think they're, they, they've more or less put behind them. I think the defense has solidified over the last few games. So I'm hoping that's at least one thing that makes them more respectable. But right now, I think it's just about weathering the early season storm, uh, hoping maybe to get Adam Engel back to bring some stability to left field. And then, you know, I think a lot of it rides on Abreu and Mancata getting it together and, you know, if they just had a rough start and they look like themselves, I think that'll go a long way into making the lineup feel uh, more than half full. Yeah, I, I'm hoping that the four losses, having a lead entering the sixth inning or later, doesn't come back and bite the White Sox, Jim. Mm-hmm. Because if the bullpen holds the lead and the they win those games, the two in Anaheim, the one in Seattle, and the one at home against Kansas City... If they win those four games, then we're talking about a 12-5 and five Chicago White Sox team. The conversation is much different than the questions that we are getting right now about the 8-9 and nine Chicago White Sox. Mm-hmm. So I think they're going to continue to play this style of baseball. It is a bit frustrating, but the White Sox are doing enough to give themselves an opportunity to win every day, except for on Patriots day. Uh, it's just, it's going to be tense. It's going to be tense. It's not going to be easy. And this also needs to be said as well. Last year, that 35 and 25 team, they were 18 and two against Kansas city and Detroit. They were 17 and 23 mm-hmm. against everybody else. Okay, they feasted on two bad rebuilding baseball teams. So there's a little bit that this White Sox squad has to prove themselves and they're getting tested early. The Angels are playing good baseball. Seattle leads the American League West. The Kansas City Royals lead the American League Central. Cleveland's above 500. Boston leads the American League East. I mean, this schedule ended up being a lot tougher because these ball clubs are playing some good baseball. And I know it's a bit frustrating that it seems like the White Sox are just treading water right now. But as I mentioned before, this road stand during Sox Machine Live Gym is a 3-3 three and three road stand acceptable. And after finishing 2-2 two and two in Boston, I hope 
that the White Sox can win one of these next two games against Cleveland. Because Texas and Detroit, Mm -hmm. those six games, the White Sox should win at least four of them. And I am confident that they could enter May with a 500 or better record. And that would be a good place for them to start this season after what has transpired and the loss of Aloy Jimenez. Yeah, I'm looking at the standings right now, and the White Sox have played every single one of their games against over 500 teams. And that's 17 games, and there's only one other team with as many as 13. That's the Rockies. <laughs> they're 4-12, they're <laughs> and, and they're 2-11 and against over 500 teams. So, you know, theoretically, you know, it's this early in the season with the samples as small as they are. I mean, part of the reason why a team might be over 500 is because they beat up the White Sox. So it's hard to say uh, at some point, you know, when it comes to like, say, the Angels, who are three games over 500, that, you know, maybe the White Sox could have put a dent in that if they played better or they held leads. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Um, but, you know, the teams they are playing are playing well, are well enough, uh, better than expected in some cases. And uh, White Sox are playing a little bit worse. So it seems a little bit like weathering the storm right now and trying to find a groove. Like they, they found some until Giolito's start. They did seem to find some stability in the rotation. Uh, and the bullpen is starting to figure itself out a little bit. Just the offense, I think, is has some really cold spots. I'll, I'll throw Yasmani Grandal in there as well with uh, Mancada and Abreu, like just that, that middle of the order, that veteran middle of the order, I think is not showing up. And that hurts when, when you're four, uh, you know, theoretically your three, four, five or four, five, six guys are not showing up in your mean Mercedes is basically carrying the load. Uh, that's a little bit tricky. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. But Bo Sox, I hope we give you some comfort uh, as far as where the White Sox stand right now after 17 games in the 2021 season. The Golden Cog, the player of the week, and he was also the player of the week of the American League. You guys voted for Carlos Rodon, and why not throwing the no-hitter against Cleveland? Rodon will be making his next start on Tuesday against Cleveland, so let's preview that series next after a quick break on the Sox Machine Podcast. The economy is made up of real people doing real stuff, and it affects everything, which you obviously know since you're a real person doing real stuff. Marketplace is here to help you get smart about everything beyond the what of the day's business and economic news. We dig into the how and the why with the real people driving our economy. From big tech and interest rates to small businesses and what's happening at the Fed, Marketplace breaks it all down so you don't have to. Listen to Marketplace wherever you get your podcasts. 
Nobody builds 5G like Verizon builds 5G because we're the engineers who built the most reliable network in America. And the more you do with 5G, the more building it right matters. The more your network matters. The more Verizon engineers going the extra mile matters. It's us pushing us. It's Verizon versus Verizon. 5G built right from America's most reliable network. Most reliable based on rankings from RootMetric's second half 2020 U.S. report of three mobile networks. Results may vary. Award is not an endorsement. Welcome back to the Sox Machine Podcast. The Chicago White Sox head to Cleveland for the first time in 2021, although it's just a two-game series. The two teams split their four-game series last week, and currently, Cleveland is 8-7 and seven as they have won six of their last 10 games, and they have a full-game lead over the White Sox right now in the American League Central standings and sit in second place behind the Kansas City Royals. For this series, something to watch for is going to be the weather, and it is going to be a factor. On Tuesday, there's only a 34% chance of rain on the first pitch, around the first pitch at 5.05 p.m. Central Time, but there's an 80% chance of rain slash snow mix at 8 o'clock p.m. Central Time. So if Carlos Rodon and Zach Plesek, who are the probable pitchers for this matchup, Uh, don't get into rhythm, and they don't get the ball and throw it right away. If this game slows down for whatever reason, the last three innings are going to be a wet affair between the White Sox and Indians. On Wednesday, there is an 80% chance of snow in the morning in Cleveland, but just a 15% chance of of precipitation, I'm sorry, at first pitch, which is again going to be 5.05 p.m. Central Time. The high temperature at first pitch is going to be 40 degrees. This is good preparation for October postseason baseball happening in Cleveland, but we'll get these White Sox players prepared for possible weather that they would face in October playing in Chicago. Uh, Again, the pitching probables are a bit out of whack. We know who starts on Tuesday. It is Carlos Rodon and Zach Plesak, but neither team has announced who would be starting on the Wednesday game. And uh, Jim, for this uh, probable pitching matchup between Rodon and Plesak, it's, uh, it's a repeat of last week, and I hope it's a repeat of the same type of performance as the White Sox rocked Zach Plesak and Carlos Rodon had his best start ever. Yeah, it's uh, me too. But uh, yeah, with Rodon you know, facing the same opponent again and basically showing his whole... Uh, I guess the one thing he could show differently is that, you know, early on in the start uh, of his no hitter, he, the fastball velocity was low at the beginning, basically leaned heavily on the changeup early on. The slider showed up later and the slider wasn't even at full force with consistency for basically the entire start. So perhaps uh, one wrinkle he can show is better slider command and, and whether it's pitching backwards, dropping in for strikes or, you know, finding the put away slider, earlier in the uh, outing that might be one way to give them a new wrinkle so uh they they don't try to uh you know jump his playbook that he had that worked so well for him last time out and again we'll see on who the probable pitchers are going to be on wednesday but as we talked about discussing as far as lance lynn and possibly missing just one start or even because of bad weather the white Sox have more off days the weather is not going to be good in Cleveland. It's not going to be good in Chicago either. We're expecting some snow Tuesday and Wednesday here in Chicago. So it just seems to be this one weather system just going through the Midwest right now. 
but be prepared for another postponed game and the White Sox and Cleveland will have to play a split doubleheader later in the season when the White Sox return to Cleveland, uh, which is based on the schedule. Looks like it's going to be late May after Memorial Day weekend, early June. So we'll see what happens as far as weather-wise. Again, we'll have the recaps on SoxMachine.com. We'll have the recaps on White Sox Wake Up Call. And after the series is played, we will have Sox Machine Live, which you can watch the live stream on our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash SoxMachine on Thursday night, April 22nd. And we'll see how this White Sox-Indian series goes. Again, I'm rooting for a split, Jim. If the White Sox win both games, then they're really sitting pretty at 10-9, and heading into their homestand in which they got three games against Texas, three games against Detroit, and then wrapped up with three more games against Cleveland. This is it. That, that would, those nine games would be an opportunity for the White Sox to definitely get themselves above 500. And, uh, hopefully pad even more distance as the Minnesota Twins are struggling right now with COVID. But you guys had a lot of questions for us this week, so let's tackle them next in P.O. Sox. You've stuffed our mailbox all week with questions from your tweets and Facebook posts. Now to cure your curiosity on the White Sox, here is P.O. Sox. Thanks, Rob. And yes, this is our favorite part of the show where you, our fans and listeners, get to ask the questions. It's P.O. Sox. We submitted your questions to us via Twitter by following us on Twitter at Sox Machine or helping support the site and the show by becoming a friend at patreon.com slash Machine. And boy, our Patreon supporters. First of all, it continues to grow Thank you so much. We're well above 500 supporters, and you guys filled up the mailbox this week. So all of our questions come from our Patreon supporters. The first question that we got, Jim, comes from Andrew Siegel. And Andrew is asking, what do you think of Zach Collins behind the plate so far? The the hitter's side notwithstanding. I think he kind of looks like the uh, better form of himself. I mean, he's throwing well. Uh, he had that great game where he threw out three base runners. Um, the receiving is better than it has been, but I think can be wonky from inning to inning or start to start. Uh, the, the framing numbers have not been kind, and, and there have been some uneven strike zones between uh, the White Sox and opponents. I guess the one thing I'll say in Collins' is defense is that Grandal really hasn't gotten off to a uh, great start either with framing. So it could be a product of White Sox pitchers, could be a product of some parks, some umpires, uh, could be Grandal is slipping too. You never quite know. But right now, neither catcher is really covering himself with glory when it comes to stealing strikes for his pitchers. So there isn't a whole lot of separation there. But I think it's the kind of skill set defensively to where you wouldn't feel bad about it if you were hitting more, but right now he's not really hitting. So it's, uh, it's not great. It's like, basically like he's, uh, he, he has uh, Austin Hedges's offense, but without Austin Hedges's defense. And I think that's, uh, that's what you want to avoid. If you were just somebody who could occasionally, uh, like, you know, Kyle Schwarber, I think is setting the bar too high, but, uh, you know, somebody a notch below him, like somebody who hit like, say, Tyler Flowers-ish, 230, uh, but slugged over 400 with a decent on-base percentage. Too many strikeouts to feel great about, but ultimately contributed something uh, from the catcher spot. Uh, paired with uh, substandard framing and okay throwing, like that's that's more or less a fine backup catcher. But if he's not hitting, I think that's when it gets into trouble because he's just, you know, he's made improvements. He's made strides. He's playable back there, but uh, it's just not enough to support his profile. 
Yeah, I hope the bat comes around. That's the part of Zach Collins' game that I'm now more worried about than his uh, ability defensively uh, to stay behind home plate. I never thought I would say those words, but here we are in 2021. Zach Collins looks passable defensively at catcher Jim, but the bat is non-existent at this point, and uh, they really could use another left-handed bat uh, to perform well in this lineup. So hopefully Zach Collins breaks out of his early season funk at the plate, but I'm with Jim Andrew. Collins is looking a lot better behind home plate. Thank you for your question. Our next question comes from Alec, and Alec is asking about Garrett Crochet. And his question is, do you think Garrett Crochet's velocity dip is due to the colder temperatures setting up to be a starter where he can't throw 101 for five plus innings or something else? I think it's something else because, you know, Arizona, the colder weather wasn't to blame there. They started the season on the West Coast, so that's not to blame. Uh, the velocity wasn't there during spring training, and they downplayed it, said that he's, you know, working up to it. He's warming up, and, you know, you can kind of buy that maybe out of the gate originally, but, you know, he's topping out 96, 97, no matter the climate. Occasionally, I think maybe he's touched 98 once or twice, but um, when you end the season with a you have plummeting velocity and a forearm issue that causes you to lead a game early. And then you come back and you're not throwing the same velocity, even though they have no designs on starting him for basically the entire season. There's no, you know, it's not like Michael Kopech to where like Kopech's throwing a bit slower, uh, you know, not hitting the speeds that he normally does, but he is stretching out for a full season. They are trying to keep that starting option in everybody's back pocket. And he's also throwing with like more life and more command. Like he's, uh, he's pitching better. Like he's, he's, uh, you know, maybe not quite as sensational when it comes to radar gun watching, you know, when he's hitting like 97, you know, versus 99, hundred, but he's throwing with a lot more life. He's throwing, he looks confident and comfortable and you like watching him work out there. I think with uh, crochet, it's a bit different when you're watching him, you know, just hitting the strike zone, but not with any kind of plan. Lefties are, not terribly afraid of him. His changeup right now looks like his best pitch, which was scary early because the changeup just looked like a, it was a hard pitch. It almost looked like a two seam without a whole lot of sink. Uh, last time out, it looked actually like it had a little bit more tail and a little bit more fade. And that's something where it's like, okay, now that that's, that's a pitch. That's, that's, that's uh when you're, when you throw a 96 mile per hour fastball and a 92 mile per hour changeup, uh, you need to see more fade, uh, more of a movement profile on it. And that finally showed up. So that made me feel a little bit better, but in terms of like the dominating force that the White Sox thought they were getting uh, with him and Bummer and, and Kopech just basically having like these uh, flame-throwing titans with uh, crazy movement, and she's like, I don't think Crochet is that guy uh, right now. And I would like to see, you know, I'd like to have somebody on the record saying why this is because uh, we've seen enough pitchers lose velocity like Carson Fulmer and... Um, yeah, Kelvin Herrera was another one, Zach Birdie, like, but I think Kelvin Herrera was a guy like, oh, he's building up to the spring training and it was very slow. <laughs> and then it kind of topped out at 96 when he used to throw 98 and the movement wasn't there and it just never came back. And they, they basically uh, cut him loose as soon as they could uh, in, in the regular season the next year uh, before he could, any of options could vest. And now he's retired. And uh, while, while Crochet is not on the verge of retiring anytime soon, it's just the kind of, uh, storyline that never materialized like the White Sox don't really have a whole lot of uh, benefit of the doubt here so it would be nice to see Crochet hit some higher numbers in the radar gun if he doesn't it would be nice to know why that is 
And at like Jacob DeGrom's proving that you could throw 101 and be a starting pitcher. But <laughs> I don't want to compare Garrett Crochet to Jacob DeGrom because DeGrom is special. Crochet could be special as well, but I'm with you, Jim. I'm I'm a bit concerned, and we'll see if the velocity does pick up. If it doesn't pick up, I mean, what are the White Sox going to do with Crochet? Because he's not the same reliever like he was for them in 2020. Yeah, I mean that that then you're having the Zach Birdie conversation all over again where you spent a first round pick on a reliever. Um and and not a special one at that. It's it's not good. You know, you don't want to go down that uh, path too far. Um but the that's a case tunnel. where yeah, and and that's a case too where um you know talking about with a trooper's question about Kopech going back to Charlotte, that's a case where with Kopech or with Crochet you know, if they do have enough arms in the bullpen, and they might not, you know, Crochet might have to be there the whole year. But if somehow over the next year or two where they do have enough guys in the bullpen and they are able to stretch out Crochet against, um, you know, competition that's more his speed or at least more his speed when it comes to stretching out as a starter and facing them multiple times in a game, uh, that's a case where that might benefit him to not have to, um, you know, because part of, you know, Watching him pitch last year, that was a very special set of, set of circumstances. Uh, basically, the arm was fresh the entire year. Uh, there's a lot of fight or flight kind of adrenaline in terms of a guy who's never had professional experience suddenly facing the best of the best and just having to get by on sheer, um, you know, basically testosterone and adrenaline, just challenging guys and, and meeting, you know, rising to the occasion. And he did, but when you have like a full year, uh, you know, how long can you ride that if you've never looked like that before? Yeah, you know, that, that's one question I had going into the season. And uh, yeah, it, it's uh, that that's one of the reasons why I was down on him. You had, you had the injury concern last year and you also had just a full year against hitters preparing for him. Uh, and and you know, he'd never had that kind of workload before at Tennessee. Like, I don't know what to do with that. So I don't want to throw expectations that he should be able to succeed as uh, wildly as he did last year. So it's tough. And I hope he doesn't become the victim of expectations that might be unfair because, you know, Chris Sale did it, but it's really hard to be Chris Sale. Yeah, that is true. It is really hard to be Chris Sale. But Alec, thank you so much for your question. Our next question comes from Iowa White Sox. And they're asking, why do we keep giving Dylan Cease chances? He can't get through four innings. It continues to fall behind hitters. Puts a lot more pressure on the bullpen than needed. Well, I mean, it's he's still figuring it out. He's, uh, you know, he's now, this next start will be his 30th. So that's basically one full season between the uh, years that he's had. And he's pitched 145 innings. And it's been a mixed bag, but, you know, he's learning like he's trying to he's trying different things like he's not a finished product he's not like ramming his head against the wall with uh one approach over and over again there is a pitcher who's evolving so it's worth seeing how it plays out and the White Sox have nobody better um yeah I think with Cease uh if he's a fifth starter that's fine because most most fifth starters are terrible and if Rodon happens to pass him by that's a and because Rodon is pitching well and and Cease used to be the fourth but now he's the fifth that's fine you know he's he's Decent enough for that role. Um, I think the problem is, and the fear is, if, you know, should Lance Lynn miss more time, if Dallas Keuchel isn't the same guy, what have you, and if Cease has to slide up to a fourth or third spot, that's where you get real itchy about it. But uh, that's kind of out of Cease's uh, uh, control. And 
really not his problem. And, and one thing I was watching you know, during the uh, Patriots uh, day game, uh, besides uh, Giolito, was uh, on the other side, Nate Eovaldi. He's kind of similar, uh, not necessarily in, in how he struggled, but a guy who threw hard but didn't know exactly what to do with it. Uh, the teams uh, that he pitched for uh, didn't exactly know what to do with it. The Dodgers handed him off to the Marlins, the Marlins to the Yankees, kind of bounced around, and he threw, you know, he had that, like, high 90s fastball, and he could sit high 90s. Uh, but, you know, it was kind of straight, didn't really get too many swings and misses. The secondary pitches kind of tinkered with it and took a while to figure out what was his best pitch. And even then, like, that's changed over the years, but he's uh, he's turned himself into a decent to good starter and sometimes a good bullpen arm and, you know, valuable to teams who have figured out how to use them and, and not relied too heavily on them. Basically, you know, if he if he exceeded expectations, it was found money, and not a, not a needed development. Uh, but that, that's kind of a career path I'm looking at. Just a guy who has all the talent in the world, frustrates um, with the way that talent doesn't get results right away. But if you if you tinker with him enough and you let him figure it out, and with Eovaldi, he reduced the fastball usage. Uh, turned to uh, a splitter, and then the splitter turned to a slider and a cutter. And he just kind of evolved over the years, but found workable forms. Uh, I think that's uh, that's a guy who will ultimately help a pitching staff. He won't be a, like a frontline starter, but he helps. And so you just have to let him figure it out. You have to let Ethan Katz do, uh, get some time to figure it out. And I would say, you know, I would say by the end of the year, by the second half at least, when you're trying to uh, shape a postseason rotation and if the White Sox have enough arms to do so, uh, that's a case where then I think you start evaluating him for what he can contribute for future years. But for the time being, for like the first couple months at least of the season, I think you just like got to let him figure it out, uh, work with the new stuff he's been given, uh, you know, hit in-season fatigue, see how that affects him, see how he bounces back from that, see how his pitches are working, see how hitters are responding to it. A lot to work out in season for a guy who's changed as much as he has. So give it some time. And hopefully he does well in his next start, which is lining up to be Texas. And boy, uh, it would be interesting if it uh, lined up, if the stars aligned it, it's Dane Dunning against Dylan Cease, Jim. That would Mm be, (laughs) oh man, that would make White Sox Twitter a very interesting place during that game. Because Dane Dunning, your American League Rookie of the Year pick, uh, he's throwing well. He's throwing really well for the Texas Rangers. Yeah, it's. It, I think there's going to be a lot of, um, you know, what if would the Rangers have accepted Cease, you know, if they uh, were, were doing that. But well, the one that's revisionist history based on, I think, what the reaction would have been if they did send Cease to Texas for one year of Lance Lynn. I think that's, uh, yeah, that would have created its own crisis at the time. But it's going to take a while. Like, you know, we talked about last year between Cease and Dunning, like, you know, if you treat them like stocks, One's uh, one you pay attention to, one you just don't look at. You maybe look at him once a year and not pay attention to what he's doing uh, <laughs> week to week. And Cease is still that guy. Cease is a guy you just want to see at the end of the year, or at least maybe by the half. What is this guy? Can the White Sox count on him? How much do they have to rely on him? How much can they mitigate his weaknesses and go from there? That's a good point. So I will White Sox... Just be a little bit more patient when it comes to Dylan Cease, and hopefully uh, he could find a way to get past the fifth inning because right now that seems to be his brick wall. But thank you so much for your question. Our next question comes from Thomas, and Thomas is asking, do you expect to see more 
of Jake Lamb in left field. I think versus Boston, it was his first ever start in left field. Is Tony La Russa trying to get everyone at bats, or do you like seeing Lamb getting playing time at left field over Lurie Garcia or Andrew Vaughn? When Adam Engel or Billy Hamilton come back, do you, do you expect the White Sox to DFA Jake Lamb? Honestly, I think Lamb is probably better than Nick Williams, but what is the end game with Jake Lamb? It is a good question because Lamb, you know, when you look at his skill set, um, doesn't you have to make up reasons to play him, and 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 Larusa is doing so by playing him in left field, which he's barely touched in his pro career. Um, I think the end game with Lamb, like the ideal scenario, is that the White Sox are able to sneak him through waivers down to Charlotte because. You know, should a Yuan Moncada injury happen, God forbid, the White Sox really don't have anybody to handle uh, like most of the playing time at third base. Like Danny Mendick could theoretically play there. Um, Larry Garcia could play there. But you'd like to have somebody who can swing the bat lefty, stand in better against right-handed pitching, and play okay defense. And Lamb does that. Um, and, you know, if they could somehow, you know, if Lamb, I guess, looks unimpressive enough in the majors, maybe they feel okay about their chances of getting him through waivers, getting him down to Charlotte. And then he's basically like an emergency player. They'd have to add him back on the roster. So there wouldn't be like any pressing need to put him back, but he'd just be a nice guy to have like uh, on the roster. If they could have uh, signed him to a minor league contract, they would, but I guess they claimed him just to see if they could, I guess put him on the roster now and then try to, you know, basically act like they signed him to a minor league deal uh, mid season. In the interim, I, I think really the whole idea with playing time in left field is to, yeah, I, I guess, yeah, the way it looks in, in terms of just how the actions are unfolding is like Larusa is an Andrew Vaughn skeptic or, or trying to protect him from looking overmatched. And on one hand, I don't necessarily blame him just because, you know, Vaughn hasn't looked great at the plate, like the, the, the double he hit into the right field corner. Uh, Steve Stone said it was like his hardest contact of the year. And, you know, Stone wasn't correct because he did have like a 105 mile per hour double to the right center gap. I think it was against Seattle. Uh, first, first hit that was like a really you know strong contact and a kind of a classic Andrew Vaughn hit. But, you know, it's not good when like a 95 mile per hour hit is like, that's the hardest contact he's made. Like that's something you say about Nick Madrigal and not about Andrew Vaughn. Like the contact hasn't been there. Um, you know, the... The timing isn't there. Uh, the pitch recognition is pretty good, but just not enough to support the timing right now. Um, it seems like, you know, he's waiting, more or less trying to kill time until Adam Engel gets back. And when Engel comes back, he'll be getting most of the playing time in left field. And for the time being, he just doesn't want to demoralize Vaughn or only wants to save him for you know, situations where it's more conducive to him. But when you watch the way, you know, Larry is swinging the bat and it's not good. <laughs> and, uh, you know, having Lamb out there and Lamb's not good. Um, i just rather see Vaughn out there for most of the time. Just see what he is to kind of put a conclusive answer on it by the time Angle comes back. I think that's more valuable than, I, I guess, protecting Vaughn at all costs. If he has like a little bit more failure than he has right now, I don't think that's at the end of the world. I don't think like you send him, you know, basically to get, destroyed like against like Shane Bieber I think sitting him during a Shane Bieber start is fine but from here on out I don't think there are many Biebers uh between now and Angle coming back so hopefully he gets most of the playing time and if he's still hitting one something by the time Angle comes back and they send him down I don't think it'll be bad um but it, it'd just be nice to have more evidence that they're doing the right thing for him and that's 
uh, the other playing time, you know, like two Garcia and two Lamb, like that doesn't really answer the question in the same way. I was high on Andrew Vaughn. I was hoping he would start quickly. He was my breakout player of the year pick and my American League rookie of the year pick. And uh, I have a feeling on May 4th, he is going to be in the opening day lineup for the Charlotte Knights, Jim. Or the Birmingham Barons. I mean, that's not bad. I mean, like like you're talking about unreasonable expectations for Crochet. It's like, I I thought it was more so for Vaughn. Like, I know they said great things about him for Schaumburg, but just like, he hasn't, you know, faced a pitcher above, uh, you know, high A that wanted to thoroughly embarrass him. At least like in a normal competitive environment. And I, I think that means something. Yeah, he just looks like a fish out of water right now. And it's understandably so. This is completely different level of competition that he's ever faced before. And as you mentioned with Gary Crochet, yeah, Gary Crochet is facing the same as well. I mean, these guys, I mean, Crochet went from three and one thirds innings against Wright State University in 2020 and straight against major leaguers. And Andrew Vaughn didn't have a minor league season last year where he probably would have spent most of his time in Winston-Salem in Birmingham, and now he's trying to figure out how to hit major league pitching. So, yeah, I'm uh, I'm with you. I'm I. It's a little disheartening. I was hoping for better, but maybe I just had too high of expectations that were not rooted in reality, Jim. And now my head is saying that Andrew Vaughn is going to be either with Charlotte or Birmingham on May fourth, and your bench outfield options are going to be. Adam Engel or Billy Hamilton, and neither of those guys are going to help you in the power department. So when it comes back to this question with Jake Lamb, I still don't know what the end game is with Jake Lamb. I don't think he's tied to Andrew Vaughn. I don't think he's tied to Adam Engel or Billy Hamilton. I I just, I don't know, Jim. I, I don't know what the end game is with Jake Lamb. Yeah, I, I think in Vaughn's defense, or at least to say an encouraging word about him, I think his plate recognition is strong enough to where he can flip a switch. I don't think it's going to come at the major league level, but I can see him like you know getting some timing issues back at Birmingham or Charlotte, and then like being back in a relative hurry, just because the the pitch recognition is good, the plate discipline's good. Um, you know, he's not fighting a two front war uh, like you know, other White Sox prospects have had, where they're trying to get their timing and they're trying to discern strikes from balls, uh, breaking balls from fastballs. Like he doesn't have those problems. It's just a matter of like getting up to major league speed uh, with getting the barrel of the bat in the uh, into the zone the same time the ball's getting there. And that's a shorter to-do list. And I can see him figuring it out and, you know, just, just need some time against, you know, you know, one regular playing time and maybe regular playing time against pitching that's only a little bit better than him rather than like way ahead of him. Right. Right. But Thomas, thank you so much for your question. And thank you to everyone that submitted questions this week for P.O. Socks. If you have a question or a topic that you would like to ask us on an upcoming episode of the Socks Machine podcast, the best way to do it is become a Patreon supporter, which you can go to patreon.com slash Socks Machine to sign up. We have several different tiers of support starting at $2, $3, $5, $10 a month in which you get an ad-free version of the podcast. You get an ad-free version of the website. You get exclusive content. You get the Major League Baseball draft report every single week. You 
get bonus P.O. Sox questions that Jim and I answer on the 60-minute version of the Sox Machine podcast. You just get more. So if you really enjoy our content and you want to help support us, go to patreon.com slash Sox Machine. And that's really the best way to get your question or topic answered in an upcoming Sox Machine podcast because, boy, our Patreon supporters are filling up the mailbag. Uh, and we greatly appreciate it. The other way, you can reach out to us on Twitter. You can, we are at Sox Machine. You can follow me on Twitter at Sox Machine underscore Josh. But that will do it for this episode of the Sox Machine podcast. Thank you to everyone that listened. You can subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. We did switch podcast networks. We have moved from Audio Boom to Blue Wire. During this transition, which is already in progress, if you have any difficulties as far as finding new episodes of the Sox Machine podcast or your feed has disappeared, send me an email at josh at soxmachine.com so we can try to troubleshoot and address those issues. But I've been told you should not be facing any problems during this transition, but we know how technology can get. Also, subscribe to our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Machine. That's where Socks Machine Live is going to be happening for the entire season. We've also done pregame shows that have gotten great feedback as well with our friends from the 108. And we'll do more video content uh, throughout the entire 2021 season. So please subscribe to our YouTube channel as well. The Sox Machine Podcast is a production of SoxMachine.com, your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening. Nobody builds 5G like Verizon builds 5G because we're the engineers who built the most reliable network in America. And the more you do with 5G, the more building it right matters, the more your network matters. The more Verizon engineers going the extra mile matters. It's us pushing us. It's Verizon versus Verizon. 5G built right from America's most reliable network. Most reliable based on rankings from Rootmetrics second half 2020 U.S. report of three mobile networks. Results may vary. Award is not an endorsement. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.